Hello and welcome to Interfilm Recommends, a regular podcast for film club leaders to explore exciting new titles with their clubs. My name is Michael and as usual I'm joined by Joe. Hello. And this is our second episode of the Spring 2018 term. Over the week of the 5th to the 9th of March, we'll be screening 13 films across 60 events, many of which have industry speakers attached to them. This is to celebrate Women in Animation as part of International Women's Day on the 8th of March and also Animating, a celebration of British animation that's taken place across the country this year, led by Film Hub Wales and the BFI Film Audience Network. In today's secondary theme podcast, we'll be discussing the 2014 sci-fi thriller Ex Machina, as well as the world's first fully oil-painted feature film Loving Vincent. So let's kick off with Ex Machina. Etch Machina is a 2015 film, it's a 15 certificate and we have it as a 14 plus on the Interfilm catalogue. It's a taut sci-fi thriller exploring the popular debate about whether artificial intelligence could ever match humankind's capacity to think and to feel. That's right, this is the feature debut from writer-director Alex Garland. Uh, he was previously a novelist uh, and wrote The Beach and he's also penned original screenplays for Danny Boyle films Sunshine and 28 Days Later as well as adapting Never Let Me Go for the big screen. So Michael, tell us a bit more about the story. Ex Machina sees a computer programmer named Caleb, played by Donald Gleeson, win a trip to meet an apparent genius CEO of his company Uh, and his name is Nathan, played by Oscar Isaac. So he goes to his secluded estate in the mountains, travelling there via helicopter and Nathan runs an experiment with Caleb to see if he is able to administer the Turing test to a female robot named Ava, played by Alicia Vikander. And it's essentially a three-person chamber piece from there. So let's hear a clip from the beginning of Ex Machina. So, do you know what the Turing test is? Yeah, I know what the Turing test is. It's when a human interacts with a computer. And if the human doesn't know they're interacting with a computer, the test is passed. And what does a pass tell us? That the computer has artificial intelligence. Are you building an AI? I've already built one. And over the next few days, you're gonna be the human component in the Turing test. Holy shit. Yeah, that's right, Caleb. You got it. Because if that test is passed, You are dead center of the greatest scientific event in the history of man. If you've created a conscious machine, it's not the history of man. That's the history of gods. Now, Michael, this is essentially a live-action film. Can you tell us what it's doing in the season of films around animation? Well, we've included it in our program because of the visual effects and the close links between that and animation. Visual effects or VFX are different from special effects. Special effects are on set and practical, e.g. props or makeup, whereas visual effects are applied in post-production and are digital, made on computers, hence the blurred lines between VFX and animation. In the case of Ex Machina, Alicia Vikander's Ava is a robot with some human physical characteristics and the film uses camera and body tracking systems to transfer her actions to the robots in order to maintain the authenticity of Vikander's performance while blurring the lines between human and machine. 
and the visual effects for Ex Matina were so impressive that they actually went on to win an Oscar despite the film's relative low budget and we're delighted that the film's VFX supervisor and Oscar winner Sarah Bennett will join us for one of the screenings in London to talk a bit about her career and her work with the Milt VFX studio. We've recently put together a film list on VFX titles and there are also other resources and articles on the Interfilm website on the topic. Simply search VFX. Great. Now the film fits nicely into contemporary themes and modern anxieties around technology and artificial intelligence in particular. Can you tell us a bit about how it explores those issues? There have been a lot of TV shows such as Black Mirror or Humans or Mr. Robot recently and films through the ages which play on an ever-growing cyber-fear of technology. In the case of Ex Machina, it does this through a number of ways. It plays on secrecy and seclusion due to Nathan's isolated mountain home, as well as the mysterious and potentially damaging legal form Caleb must sign as a waiver. Nathan is also constantly watching on a room full of CCTV screens as this Turing test plays out. It also plays on our suspicion and paranoia and our fears of the unknown, specifically in a technological sense, but also of various other aspects of the law, of people and their motivations, of money and madness, of gender and sex. Why is it up to anyone? Now, just building on that, um, another issue that feels very topical is the exploration of gender roles. How does the film interrogate those? You're right, it is very topical, and we should hear a clip from an interview on the Interfilm website in which one of our young reporters, Anna, interviews Alicia Vikander and director Alex Garland. And here she asks Alex Garland about that very issue. In the film, Nathan creates a beautiful woman rather than a man. And I was just wondering, what does this predict about the intention of the, and the control of the creator? He creates a robot that looks like a girl for reasons that are specific to him. We would probably try to create robots if we could in this sort. We'd probably try to create them that look like us. And that I guess they would have male versions and female versions, but it's an illusion because it's not really male or female in any meaningful sense. So I actually want to disagree with Alex Garland just a little bit here. I think Ava being programmed as female, so to speak, is a crucial aspect of not only her personality, particularly when you look at the ending of the film, of which I'll say no more, but also of Nathan's. She is created in his image, so she's attractive, seductive, mysterious. Nathan doesn't want to be challenged by another male, which is why he doesn't create one. But Nathan also underestimates Ava and the power she herself holds. Gender and sex are important elements of ex machina, and the question of whether Ava can ever be thought of as sentient or conscious can also be reframed as one Caleb is asking himself. Instead of, does she feel things, he may well be asking, am I allowed to feel things for her? Hello. Hi. I've never met anyone new before. Have you? None like you. She's incredible. The challenge is to show you that she's a robot and then see if you still feel she has consciousness. Fantastic. Well, there's so many things to unpack about the film, as we've just heard. Um, what films would you recommend fans of Ex Matina seek out next? Spike Jones's Her is a brilliant sci-fi romance in which a man called Theodore, played by Joaquin Phoenix, falls in love with an operating system which consists of little more than a voice. So you can see the natural links to Ex Machina there. And it goes off in some wonderful and weird directions. 
uh, AI, Artificial Intelligence, in Steven Spielberg's epic adaptation of a short story, which questions what it is to be alive and to be human and to love and to feel. And finally, I'd also recommend The Congress, which is um, a kind of little-known uh, sci-fi in which Robin Wright plays a version of herself, in which she reluctantly agrees to sign over the rights for her digital image to a studio called Miramount, who have um, developed this new technology. And as a result, she's no longer allowed to act, and they can place her image into any film that they create from that point. Interestingly, this is also a blend of live action and animation, which looks a lot like rotoscoping, but isn't. Uh, and again, that's a, that's a really interesting comparison to Ex Machina. Fantastic. Well, we also have a film guide for Ex Machina, and we should say we are producing special film guides based around International Women's Day for all of the screenings that we've got coming up. And they will be available on our website very, very soon. Just go on to interfilm.org and search for the film title. Okay, and on to our second film of the podcast, which is Loving Vincent. This is a 12 certificate. We have it at 14 plus on our catalogue, and it's a fascinating animated drama about the impressionist artist Vincent van Gogh's last few days. Yeah, that's right. So it tells the story of his period living in the south of France and the events leading up to his death. The film takes the form of a detective story, uh, reluctantly led by a man named Armand, who's the son of a postman that the artist was friends with. And he finds himself in possession of a letter from Van Gogh, and his father instructs him to track down and give the letter to the artist's brother, Theo. But when he discovers that Theo has also died, Armand must find somebody else to take possession of it, and in doing so, he unearths a series of mysterious events that call into question how the artist really died. Let's hear a clip from Love and Vincent. So, what brings you to Orvare? I want to do something for Vincent. You're not going to stir things up again, are you? We've had quite enough weeping over that nutcase. His neighbours and the police Get out of and the whole town <laughs> against an ill man. Vincent, what have you done? We all knew something was very wrong. Vincent! Okay, Joe, so is it possible to describe the animation style? How does the oil painting technique affect the look of the film? Well, it's been described as the world's first fully painted film, but it's also one of the slowest assembled films that's ever been made. It took seven years to construct. And that's because every frame in the film, which is around 65,000, is an oil painting, replicating some of the artist's best-known pieces. And each one of those frames needed to be assembled from scratch by a team of over 125 animators. But more than that, though, the film also features a lot of recognisable actors, which can be quite jarring at first, when you've got somebody like Chris O'Dowd or Cersei Ronan or Douglas Booth. They suddenly seem to be popping up in a Vincent van Gogh painting, and it's a very unusual sense you get then but what happened was the film was shot in live action using those actors and then each frame was hand painted over and that gives this remarkable impression that the paint itself is moving uh, the actors worked either on green screen or on set so were constructed to resemble the paintings and this footage then became the reference point for the animators or the painters to produce more than 900 individual paintings for this project 
And just to throw some more stats at you, if you haven't had quite enough, there are 94 Van Gogh works reproduced very closely in this movie, with a further 30 or so referenced throughout. And anybody who's not a student of art history, there's a very helpful visual glossary over the end credits, which kind of gives you the titles um, at the end, which is really interesting to see. So it's a really remarkable visual project that I think is probably best described as just paintings moving, basically. So how does this film explore Vincent van Gogh's life and legacy? Is it a traditional biopic or something else? It's more of a detective story and it makes some claims around the circumstances around his death that will be controversial to quite a lot of historians, it's probably fair to say. But what it does do is it captures something of what his life would have been like in the south of France and the people he would have interacted with. Those who know about Van Gogh will be aware that his painting career was remarkably brief, but also extraordinarily prolific, and many of the faces, characters and landscapes that we know from his work made appearances in this film. It also goes into some of the issues around his mental health, and in particular his struggle with depression. He used painting as a way to bring beauty into what was quite a dark world for him, and the co-director of this film, Dorota Tobiela, uh, apologies for any mispronunciations there, is also on record as saying that that was a very similar approach that she took to her own art and this film in particular. You know, it can be a bit of a cliche to say that the film brings the works to life and I think the paintings themselves are full of enough vitality that they don't need that helping hand. But what this film really succeeds in doing is presenting them in a unique context that I personally found really captivating. And I think ultimately the film is trying to say that the best way of getting to know an artist is through their work. And that's a sentiment that Van Gogh himself would probably be very much on board with. And we have an interview with one of the film's stars, Douglas Booth. Was it ever considered a gamble to launch a painted film? Yeah, a massive gamble. Um, Hugh, the producer, he had, you know, he, he said that he had 120 artists working hand to mouth under his employment. And they were still financing the movie as they were going along. So he said he had a lot of responsibility and there were a lot of people that had travelled a long way to, to, to work on this movie. So that was a gamble in some sense, people had put a lot at stake. Um, but it really is just a, a creative, um, artistic adventure that they went on. Um, every canvas was a gamble for every artist that was involved. And what other titles out there explore animation in such innovative and exciting ways for fans of Loving Vincent? Uh, well, it shares a lot of similarities with rotoscope animation, which we've mentioned, and that's very broadly speaking, where animators trace over live action footage frame by frame, and it's probably most famously demonstrated in Richard Lindley's uh, films A Standard Darkly and Wake in Life. There's also lots of brilliant biopics of artists out there. One of my personal favourites is Mike Lee's Mr. Turner, starring Timothy Spall, who learned to paint for two years before filming even began. And then there is also Frida, about Frida Kahlo, there's Bastiat, Girl of a Pearl Earring, about Vermeer, and Factory Girl, which is all about the relationship between Andy Warhol and Edie Sedgwick. And they all tell the story of important artistic figures in really illuminating ways. I think hopefully what films like this can do is also to inspire young people to go out and discover more about the artists for themselves and visit their art museums and even understand about the emotional power of the act of creativity itself. And we should also say there's a blog on the Interfilm website called Loving Vincent, the world's first fully painted film, if you want to know more. There is indeed. 
that's everything for today. Thank you very much for listening. Ex Machina will be streaming in Leicester, Newcastle, Exeter, Glasgow, Central London and Plymouth on the week of the 5th of March. While Love and Vincent will be playing in Belfast, Edinburgh, North Wales and North London. We hope you can make it to one of our spring screenings, but if not, you can order the films from our catalogue and watch them with your club that way. We also have an animating hub page on our website which links to lots of content including seven newly written film lists on different aspects of the craft from the history of animation and hand-drawn animation to rotoscoping and VFX. Do check out our previous podcasts on SoundCloud and iTunes, all of which are accompanied by show notes linking to resources such as film guides, film lists, blogs and video content. And if you're also interested in primary content, we have a new podcast episode available featuring the adventures of Prince Ahmed, the oldest animation in the world. We'll be back with a new episode in March, so tune in then.